todo el mundo. Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. My guest today is Debbie Kruger, author of Songwriter Speak, the definitive book on Australia's most popular and important songwriters. This is part two of our in-depth interview, and in this episode, we talk about her take on the controversy surrounding ACDC's Back in Black album, interviewing Nick Cave, why Tina Turner did not want to record What's Love Got to Do With It, Debbie's love of the band Sherbet, and working with rock photography legends like Henry Diltz and Bob King for the pictures in Songwriters Speak, plus her upcoming projects. So let's get back to it. We left off talking about some of your interviewees who went the extra mile to accommodate you. I understand that you also had a great experience interviewing John Farrar, who wrote some of the most iconic songs for the film version of the musical Grease. Can you expand on that? Um, John Farrar here in LA, who lives in Malibu, who goes way back to the earliest pop music history of Australia and um, and moved to London and united with Olivia and John and wrote and produced early hits, produced, you know, I Honestly Love You For Her in London. And then they moved out to LA and, of course, he went on to write those two huge hits from Greece, You're the One That I Want, and Hopelessly Devoted to You. And I said to him in the interview, you know, because he he knows he's a good songwriter, but he doesn't, he's very modest and shy about attention and always looking to write something else great, although he's pretty much retired now. And I said to him, you know, you wrote You're the One That I Want, period. That's it. You don't have to do anything else in your life, you know. It might be the simplest of songs. But when you hear it, it brings back images and memories. Anyone who was around then and saw Greece, it encapsulates the whole film in those two and a half minutes and the joy of that film and, and the beauty of Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta together. And, you know, what more can you ask as a songwriter than to create 
a whole world in two and a half minutes that people take with them for the rest of their lives. So what I found intriguing about him was that it was painful for him to talk about himself. And my interview with him was really the first time he did that in depth. Um, He's spoken to a few people since and accepted a few, you know, lifetime achievement type awards since. Um, He's still incredibly modest guy. Um, But that just, you know, when I met him, I was in awe of him. And he was astounded that we liked the same Beach Boys songs, like In in My Room and, and Warmth of the Sun and God Only Knows, you know, that he loved songs like that. And I love songs like that. And he was just a bit amazed that this woman from Australia whom he'd never met before turned up on his doorstep and sat down and talked about music with him in a way that he loved to talk about music. So it was those experiences with very different songwriters that I took with me or Rob Hurst from Midnight Oil. You know, I really expected the Oils guys to be a bit tough and and hard on me, but they were fantastic. And then Rob turned around at the end of the interview and, and kind of looked at me and said, you ask damn good questions. It was great. And we became friends and he went on to, I'd had two launches for my book in Australia and the second was at the Byron Bay Writers Festival and he he launched it for me there. Um, wow. When they played, when the Oils were on their farewell tour and played the Greek Theatre here in 2017, I already had a ticket. I let Rob know I was coming. Next thing, there's an email copying the whole band and management in saying, Deb, we've got backstage passes for you. And, and uh, you know, it was just you know, I just feel that when you interview someone and you make a connection, I know you've done this, you hope they might remember you. They, you hope they might walk away and think about that interview, but you know that you're just one of many people. But the the point of this book was that for many of these interviews, they did end up forming friendships in my life or at least connections where I could always get in touch with them again and they would know who I was. And And for me, as that little girl who grew up listening to Top 40 Radio and and wanted more than just to be a passive listener of radio and music, wanted deep, profound connections in my life. That's really the hallmark of my life is, is deep, profound connections. This book was my major work in, in, in showing that I can do that. Yeah, well, one of the things that you brought up in your foreword and elsewhere in the text of Songwriters Speak is that you really wanted to get these stories as, you know, people are mortal and their songs may be immortal, but they're mortal. And some of them have passed, including a Chrissy Amplet of Divinals. Um, in fact, uh, Terry Britton wrote a song that they recorded. Um, so that you know, was kind of one of your impetus for for doing the book to preserve these songwriters' stories and their their kind of their life work. Um, so, who are some of the others that have passed since the book mm. was published originally? I'm glad actually that you mentioned Chrissy Amphlett because when I interviewed her, she thanked me for considering her as a songwriter because she said she'd always been perceived to be this you know, rock chick in a school uniform urinating on the stage kind of performer. (laughs) And she actually really wanted to be taken seriously. And at the time I met her, she'd really matured into a lovely, refined woman who 
was just it was only an hour in a in a hotel room with dim lights but it was very special because she really respected the work I was doing and she was working on her own memoir at the time and our books came out at very similar times so we were emailing each other and she invited me to her book launch and she was so excited to see me and I really treasure a photo that Australian photographer Bob King took of that meeting of me leaning over and we're kind of she's touching my cheek and we're holding our each other's hand and and she's signing my book for me and it's just so special um interesting the Huda Gurus played in LA just a couple of weeks ago and I caught up with them and Rick Grossman their bass player had originally been in the Divinals and he still misses Chrissy to this day um so she's she even though I was not a huge Divinals fan per se I knew their songs and and she stays with me um, George Young of the Easy Beats, who died, um, and that was a huge loss. Uh, Jim Keyes, oh, my God. He was the lead singer and, and co-songwriter of very pioneering rock group in Australia, The Masters Apprentices, and he loved what I was doing with the book. He told me the story, which I tell in the introduction to his chapter, that Apparently Bob Dylan was a Master's Apprentices fan and there was kind of a Dylan had requested a, a signed copy of the record that, you know, it, it this music back then, you've got to remember, records kind of arrived in countries via people on cruise ships and things. And, and it was like a secret society of discovering music from elsewhere. And some Australian music did cross the ocean to the ears of very influential artists, Bruce Woodley from The Seekers co-wrote Red Rubber Ball with Paul Simon. I mean, you know, all these paths that crossed. Jim Keyes died of cancer a few years back, and that was really sad. Um, uh, gosh, um, who else have we lost? We've lost, um, oh, there's this great band from Australia, Mental as Anything. I don't know how well known they were over here. I know they did tour around America a bit. Yeah, I remember that name. I don't know what their songs are, though. They kind of broke through around the same time as um, the Huda Gurus and, and Midnight Oil and those bands. And they were very pop-focused rather than heavy rock-focused, kind of art-pop. Um, they were art school graduates and painters who wrote songs and played kooky, you know, quirky, kooky music and, and but you know, great lines like "If you leave me, can I come too?" and 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 songs like that. And um, uh, Greedy Smith is one of the two key songwriters of the group, and he just died of a heart attack one day about um, four years ago, and it was mm. just devastating, devastating, yeah. and and um. Look, even now losing Olivia Newton-John and Tina Turner, whose songwriters are in my book, even if it's not the songwriters themselves but the artists that those songwriters were best known for, it all it all is part of this, this notion that let's get these stories told. Um, Joy McKean is chapter one in my book. She was the matriarch of Australian country music. Um, her late husband, Slim Dusty, was the closest thing we had to a Johnny Cash in Australia. And um, she wrote a lot of his songs. He wrote his songs, she wrote his songs. 
And she died at the age of 93. And the announcement came through the same hour I announced that the book was coming out again. And really? Joy had been, yeah, I was absolutely, I was so flawed. I mean, she'd been, she was old, you know, uh, 93, what a life. Um, but what most people didn't know was that at the beginning of her chapter, it said that I'd interviewed her in August 2003. But in fact, I'd interviewed her in December. And just when the designer was doing the book, the designer mocked up that first page and had transposed a date from somewhere else. And it all, it just got missed in all the proofs. Ah. And I realized, oh no, because she talks openly and heartfully about Slim having just died. Well, Slim died in September. So the interview had taken place in December and I promised her in a reprint I'd fix it. And I was just I was just checking up whether I had a current email for her with the photographer who had photographed her and Slim and given me that photograph for my book, John Elliott. And John and I were exchanging messages about it and then the news came through that Joy had died. Oh. Um, and Rolf Harris had just the announcement of his death had come through. And, you know, a lot of Australians and Brits were glad to see that he'd gone because of the crimes he'd committed. But I was still sad in that it was a very sad ending to a very intriguing and complicated and ultimately bad way of living. And um, I'm glad that I had the opportunity to interview him, particularly about his songwriting and... um, and yeah, we're going to keep losing people. And so I'm just glad that there are a lot of great stories here that will stay and hopefully be available for people to read forever now. Yeah, me too. I mean, you really have preserved, it's like um, a historical document really for people that love music and songwriting. And early on, we talked about Savage Garden, which was uh <laughs> They really hit it big in the States in 97, and I was really into grunge and metal, and I was a little embarrassed that I loved their their music. It's such lightweight pop, but it's not really lightweight. I mean, there's something about it that's really, you know, if you listen to the lyrics, and uh, Daniel Jones and Darren Hayes were just such a great songwriting team, but they didn't last that long, relatively speaking. So I'd love to know more about... um, their single truly madly deeply is kind of still the perfect pop song what was it like to interview them and why do you think they didn't last well it's interesting because I said in the at the beginning of the chapter you know they were once and beautiful but actually they were twice and beautiful because they had two albums um I think had they continued they could have ended up being considered you know Australia's Burt Bacharach and Hal David they were brilliant um Darren was was more the lyricist. Um, so when you listen to a song like Affirmation, oh my God, it's just it's just a million words, a mile, you know, a hundred miles an hour, a uh, hundred miles a minute. But truly, madly, deeply, which uh, goes down as one of the greatest love songs ever to come out of Australia. Um, they were just two kids from Brisbane in Australia who met up, very different, um, but just made musical magic, got a record deal, got a great producer, and out it came and it just struck the right chord And at the time because, yes, it had been a very grungy 
decade hitherto and um, good songs and good songwriting will always shine through regardless of the genre. They were just very different and I interviewed them separately. I went to Darren's house in London where he was living at the time and he was still quite, that was 2004, so it was I think two or only two or three years after they'd broken up and he was still very sad and confused about it and and wished that it weren't the case. Um, and Daniel, I went to his house in Brisbane and sat in his magnificent studio in his huge house that truly madly deeply hadn't others had built. <laughs> and he was very comfortable in his life of he wasn't a big stage performing kind of guy, whereas Darren, as the lead singer was, um, Daniel wanted to produce and write and didn't want to tour and perform. What other personal dynamics there were that caused the split to this day, I don't know. I It was one of those cases where I knew about them at the time because I was actually working on a music festival in Brisbane and my and my associate, my my marketing communications associate, because I was doing PR for this huge international music festival, she was playing Savage Garden all the time in the boardroom while we were doing the ticketing for the festival. And I was like, who are that? That doesn't sound like the Eagles. But in fact, in a way, in a way, some of their songs It's do. very lush pop and yeah, it's very got lush pop, a lot but of... then so is wasted time off Hotel California, if you think about mm-hmm. it. And um some things just come to you in their right time. So it was because I wanted to interview them and also because I'd worked at APRA and they had won big awards, you know, most performed international song and that kind of thing, both two years running at the APRA Music Awards. And so I, I, I was forced into knowing about them and then I realised, oh, my God, these songs will live forever and ever and ever. Just beautiful, beautiful songs. Um, so, yeah, I there you know, there are conversations I had where they were very open with me Rob and Jim from Midnight Oil were sad that Midnight Oil were not an entity at the time because Peter Garrett the lead singer had gone into politics so he'd ended that they'd ended the band so that Peter could pursue his passion to be a politician at the time and they were sad and they didn't want the band to be over and Time passed and eventually the band did get back together and record and tour again for some years. So, again, it was a moment in time, the conversation I had with them at that time. Um, I'm just really glad that both Darren and Daniel agreed to talk to me so that I could put a chapter on Savage Garden together. Yeah, it was very special to to meet them both. Um, Well, some of the people that you talk to, I mean, really all of them have something that must have tied them together. I mean, uh, what is it that that makes these songwriters so eloquent? And even if it's just from a moment in time, it lasts. What do you think that that these songwriters have in common? Well, that's the $6 million question because um, whether they're Australian, New Zealand songwriters, American songwriters, British songwriters, or even songwriters writing in another language, the one thing I think they all have in common is that there is they all acknowledge that there is no one way to write a song and that there is no one formula. So while Nashville is full of songwriters that 
make appointments to get together and sit down and write a song and they'll come up with a title or they've got a chorus and they put it all together in a kind of join the dots fashion. There are songwriters like Graham Goble from Little River Band who believes that the angels come down, the songwriting angels, and bring songs to him in his sleep. And he's not the only one who believes something like that. Or Casey Chambers who thinks that the songs are in her guitar. Hmm. Or, you know, they, or they're one who thinks that it's just in the in the ether. And if it's not a good songwriting day, then that song won't be in the air. And, and the, you know, that they're a channel. They all agree it's hard work. Um, but there is no, that's the beauty of it. That's why you can do a book like this. Um, you can ask the same question to 40 different songwriters and get a similar version of the same answer or a completely different version. Very few of them actually wrote notation. You know, Rolf Harris was one who did. Um, there were a few that were classically trained, but, you know, even a songwriter like Don Walker from a band named Cold Chisel, who never really broke through internationally, but are one of Australia's most iconic rock groups. And if you didn't look up any Cold Chisel on your travels, do. Um, their lead singer, Jimmy Barnes, is still a huge solo star in Australia. Um, but Cold Chisel, my favourite Cold Chisel albums are Breakfast at Sweethearts and 20th Century. Um, Don Walker was their chief songwriter he like he's fond of a minor chord um he's a piano player and yet he he told me he doesn't really write at the piano he'll he'll just he'll hear the song in his head and he'll write down the lyrics and then he might go to the piano and come up with a melody but um it's often based or at least back then it was often based on what he remembered the melody was in his head when he was writing the lyrics um Whereas other, a lot of songwriters need to be at an instrument one way or another. They just need to be at an instrument and they often will lose themselves completely in the process. So if somebody suddenly knocks on the door or bursts in the room, they're like a, a cat frozen on the ceiling. That's how uh -huh. Brian Cat, I think Brian Cad described it that way. Um, that That was the pleasure of it. Asking questions of every one of them and getting lots of different, very personal responses and it will always be I think I said in my I wrote in my initial original preface that that was the beauty was that it will always be an enigma it will always be a mystery and and yet magical this is true now was there any particular story or revelation that might have surprised you when you were interviewing these people mm, now I really need to put my thinking cap on <laughs> Look, at the time the book came out, you know, armed with lots of, you know, I did a lot of interviews on radio, did a couple of TV interviews. Um, there was a whole list of anecdotes and stories that I shared and, and interesting cross-references. Um, more now that I'm reissuing it, I, I'm more focused on the work as a whole and the, and the, the joy of just getting it back out there. And I, over the years, I would pick the book up and read a chapter and go, wow, that's good. Gee, what a great conversation I had. Um, I, I mean, no, they're just great stories, like Terry Britton telling the story of, of how reluctant Tina was to sing What's Love Got to Do With It. 
Or, yeah, you probably weren't expecting that when yeah. he told you that initially, right? Yeah. Or um, Colin Hay had some funny stories. You know, when he, he wrote Down Under, you know, which is an iconic Australian song and kind of well-known here because it was the theme song for when Australia won the America's Cup yachting race in 1983. Um but he was writing it as an immigrant to Australia, a Scotsman who had immigrated to Australia as a child in that wave of immigration, and looking at it with a kind of cynical eye. It's not really written as a song celebrating Australianness. It's a song making complete satirising and, and being quite critical of a lot of Australianisms. But Australians are very, you know, like Americans, very patriotic and and they've sort of... Kind of like born up. in the USA from no, Bruce Springsteen exactly. is not a celebration. <laughs> exactly. And for some people, you needed to see the, the Tom Cruise film to understand what it meant to be born in... Oh, well, that was born on the 4th of July, but the, the same... Yeah. The same... Um, dichotomy right um yeah uh, down under is is hugely ironic and and colin hay is a master of irony and that's why when you go and see him if you if you're lucky enough to see him do one of his acoustic performances where he tells all the stories it's just it's hysterical he's he's very funny um and uh, some of the stories that, you know, people like, say, Todd Hunter and Joanna Piggott told about writing songs, they wrote the songs together. They're married, but they have completely different versions of those of writing those songs. Oh, we wrote it here. No, we were there. Oh, I was sitting on the step. No, you were over here. It was raining. No, it wasn't. Or, or words to that effect. And it was hysterical um, listening to them and seeing how they play off each other and and, and disagree and yet are, are in complete harmony as creatives. So those were the things. Um, I love the stories. I love John Farrah's story of writing Hopelessly Devoted to You. And and he had an Australian um, friend, I think it was, I think it was Daryl Cotton or maybe Russell Morris. We'd have to go back and look at his chapter, visiting and sitting by the pool. And he said, have a listen to this. And 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 John gave me, and a number of the songwriters gave me their original demos that they had sung for. Really? songs yeah I've got John Farrah's demos for demo for hopelessly devoted to you and um I've got some of Glenn Shorrock's demos for songs that ultimately were recorded by Little River Band but that he recorded before he was in Little River Band like help is on its way um and uh and those are those are treasures to me um so, yeah, I mean, the book is full of these great anecdotes that often surprised me. But I think it was more just that they were, there was only one songwriter that I look back and think, oh, my God, that was agony. That was like getting blood out of a stone. Everyone was really into it and willing and, and delighted to share their stories with me. Yeah, it was it was lovely. Yeah, it shows. Um, the book is really, really so detailed and so fascinating. It's um, anyone who loves music and songwriting highly recommend the book. Um, now, I want to ask you sort of a little off-topic question. Um, since ACDC is one of the most 
famous heavy Australian bands and you're you're the expert on songwriting I kind of wonder what your take is on that never-ending controversy that the back in black album contains uncredited lyrics by Bon Scott um, who died he just he died just a few months before the album was released and a lot of people say well he had to have contributed lyrics but he's not credited well it's interesting you ask that because I wanted Angus and Malcolm Young in my book and I not because I'm an ACDC fan because I'm not but because they are Australia's biggest songwriting expert exports commercially you know I mean Vander and Young were the greatest but the, the Young Brothers in ACDC have sold the most records of any Australian songwriters so I wanted them in the book I thought they held a rightful place and in fact I knew plenty of people that knew them and particularly Malcolm who said to me at the time Malcolm would love to do this they they long to be taken seriously as songwriters but um ACDC's people were very obstructive and didn't want it to happen for whatever reason. And then Malcolm, unfortunately, had early onset dementia and died tragically young. Um, I've never even attempted to go back and see if I could interview Angus about anything because I, I'm not as knowledgeable about ACDC as others. But I will say this. My gut instinct tells me that Brian is telling the truth. I don't see any reason for Angus and Malcolm to obscure the truth. They loved Bon. They loved Bon Scott. Why would they not want him to be celebrated if it, indeed he had contributed those lyrics? Interestingly, because as I've indicated in this conversation, there are incredible threads and connections that run between so many of these artists and more. I've been working for the last three years on and off on a book about Sherbet, this pop group whose song Cassandra opened my eyes to Australian pop music. And, and Sherbet were a, a considered to be a shiny, fluffy pop group, but actually they were much more interesting and deep than that. And there's a lot of sadness and darkness behind the Sherbet story. And they crossed paths with ACDC a lot because ACDC opened for Sherbet on tour in 1974 and um, even earlier than that Bon Scott's earlier band Fraternity shared a residency at a, a nightclub in Sydney called Jonathan's Disco with the earliest version of Sherbet so the bands would play they would kick a football around together during the day between rehearsals and hang out in the band room when they were you know alternating sets and um and so people that I interviewed for my Sherbet book who were part of the group in those early years had a lot of interesting stories to tell about Bon. And then Sherbet's fan club secretary for a while in the 70s was one of Bon's girlfriends. And it was quite clear that Bon was a very complicated man and like a lot of great artists, you know, became addicted to things that, ruined his life but everything I heard from other people was that at his heart he was a very sweet honorable guy I just can't my gut tells me that there's no way that Angus and Malcolm would want to submerge any glory that Bond might have had after his death 
And they were just lucky to get Brian Johnson, who fitted in so well and took them to the next step of their career without ever denying the the legacy and the heritage of the original ACDC in the same way that when you go and see Queen plus Adam Lambert, Adam is brilliant. You get a brilliant show and you hear those Queen songs as Freddie would be thrilled and proud for them to be heard. But in no way does Adam pretend to have written the songs or pretend to be Freddie. He says, I am just the person representing this great man. And so whenever we go and see Queen or watch that beautiful film, Bohemian Rhapsody, we feel that Freddie is being celebrated authentically. And I and I think not being anywhere close to the ACDC story and not having had the privilege of interviewing those guys, that that's the truth, that I think Brian's telling the truth and it's just some kind of weird rock and roll conspiracy theory. And it's people definitely. Need, people need, and, you know, the only reason it's still... Way. And the only reason it prevails is because of social media. Exactly. Yes. I read a book. I cannot recall the name of the author. I must have it in my bookcase somewhere here, but it was all about, it was very convincing actually, as many conspiracy theories are. And then when I listened to um, Brian Johnson's autobiography on Audible, and he tells the story and he explains how he wrote the lyrics and how the inspiration came to him. I mean, it was almost sort of a, a, an ethereal uh, experience, like how these lyrics came to him. So I, I tend to believe uh, Brian as well. You know, you remember when Freddie died, mm-hmm. um, unbeknownst to a lot of people, there was an album in the works, which they ended up releasing a few years later, Made in Heaven, full of the most intensely beautiful vocals from Freddie. You, you still can't believe he was singing those those songs while he was so sick and lyrics about dying, you know. And it's, you know, it wouldn't occur to Brian and Roger to deny that. So there's no way. I just don't see. Australians just aren't like that. There's just no way. Why would Brian want to take the credit for something he didn't do? Exactly. I, I, maybe, maybe I am too um optimistic and and you know naive but i just don't know i don't buy it brothers did take pains to make sure that um bond's family uh, was compensated and they really kind of went above and beyond so but i want to get back to something that you talked about earlier was the photographs in your book and you've really oh, yeah. got some amazing photographers including henry diltz who's yeah, a legendary henry. whose work is in the book so can you talk about finding just the right photos to illustrate those interviews in all cases i asked if i could get new photos done of the songwriters and some of them just wanted to furnish me with um existing photographs publicity photos um so it was probably half and half but Bob King who I mentioned before is a fantastic music photographer in based in Sydney who's kind of I wouldn't compare him to Henry because Henry is so famous for the images that he's that he captured from Laurel Canyon and beyond and all the the great album covers, whereas Bob was a concert photographer primarily. Um, you'd always see him with his long ponytail in the pit at, at any concert in the 70s. 
But I become friendly with him through my work, um, particularly at APRA as their head of communications. And um, I'd even asked him to come and take photos of my 40th birthday party at my parents' house in 2002. There you go. I've aged myself. Uh-huh. And um, and so when I said to him, would you take some photos for my book? He was thrilled to do it. And he did it for me um, for the joy of doing it. And And as so many of the artists in my book, did you know they they waived rights a lot of them you know just getting permission I'm getting off the subject I'll come back to photography but just getting permission to have lyrics you know if Graham Goebel or somebody John Williamson who's a not known outside Australia but you know one of Australia's most legendary country music singer-songwriters if he quoted his own lyrics I had to then get permission from the publishing company to print those lyrics wow so because most of these songwriters share their publishing with a publishing company. So um, fortunately, I'd worked for APRA Amcos, and that includes uh, royalties for publishers. So I knew all the heads of the Australian music publishing companies. And and for the most part, they were all very easy to deal with. Um, with the photographers, yeah, they, they all entered into the spirit of it. And Bob took some beautiful photos of, um, you know, he came down to Todd and Joanna's place, Todd, Todd Hunter and Joanna Piggott, down in the on the south coast of New South Wales, and for a, a day of photography. And um, uh, and sometimes I couldn't get a new photo, so these photographers would go into their archives, which is how I got the beautiful photo of Slim Dusty and Joy McKean from John Elliott. But John came and took the photo of Rob and Jim from Midnight Oil for me. Um, I had an old high school buddy, Andrew Murray, who was living in London, working as a photographer. And so he came down to Surrey, to Richmond, to photograph Terry Britton for me. Um, Beautiful photos he took that day. And um, Henry, yeah, he took the John Farrow photo and the Colin Hay. He came to Topanga for the whole interview I did with Colin. And we sat out on Colin's patio and at this fabulous mosaic table. And, you know, if you know anything, you know Henry. He's obsessed with photographing anything. If you go to dinner with Henry, he'll photograph forks and spoons. <laughs> yeah, but, he's still got that the the passion for photography oh, after all these decades. Loves, he loves how something looks in his lens, even if it's just in his iPhone lens now. And um, so we got some fabulous photos at, of, the, of the day at Colin's place. Um, and then, you know, the photo of Nick Cave, which is a very um, prominent photo, it's on the front cover and used at the head of his chapter. And that was supplied by the photographer, um, Polly Borland, who had been photographing him for years. And I had to haggle with her to use it because she's an artist as well. Um, but, there, were, you know, I did this book on a shoestring budget. And I was just lucky that the publishers made it look like a very um, uh, polished, beautiful book. You know, people commented on how how nicely it was produced and put together. Um, the original cover, which you can't see on the podcast, but I'll show you, had oh. these little, it's a paperback, but these inside Oh, I see, flat. yeah. The ends kind of flat, fold in yeah. almost like a dust jacket. Mm-hmm. But we, you couldn't do that on the print-to-order model that I've republished on. So, um so it's a little different now. The inside cover is that colour, that blue, pale blue colour. 
um, which my bio sits in top on top of. But um, I'm glad that you noticed the photos because every chapter leads with a photo. And this is what Paul Zollo did in his book. But um, And Henry took, you know, some of the photos for Paul Zollo's original book. But we made our photos more prominent. Um, we made them quite big on the page so that as you're reading the chapter, you know, it's like Brian Cadd's a big hairy guy. He's even hairier yeah. now. Yeah. Um, but you, you look at that and it's it's almost like, I suppose, and this is only coming to me now as a truth, you know, when I was a kid and I would buy my vinyl album and I would sit on the floor and just deeply pour over the photos on the album cover. That's how you would get to know the artist. That's why Henry's work is so important. And I think these photos could serve in that you're, re you're listening or reading this conversation and, and you can look at the photo of that person and go, okay, that's the person who's talking to Debbie Kruger in this conversation, that person whose photo I'm looking at. So the photos were very important. Um, I also had a friend called Keith, Keith Saunders, who came and took the photo of uh, Martin and Greedy, Martin Plaza and Greedy Smith from Mental as Anything. And we did it on the front doorstep of Martin Plaza's house. They lived around the corner or near each other. And we got... Um, we got individual photos, but the photo of them sitting together was the one was was the good one. And and the great thing about the ones where I had photographers do them for me is that I got to be in some photos that I got to keep for my archives. You know, just outtakes. Um, yeah, very special, very special times. Really, um, the one Indigenous songwriter in the book, Archie Roach, who's also gone. Very, very important because I don't know if you're aware. It's it's a similar thing. 60 Minutes focused on it in Canada, actually, the, the stolen generation, children of Indigenous, from Indigenous families who were taken from their parents and, you know, put into white orphanage, like boarding schools um, mm. or, or, you know, to be brought up as white children. And, and, and Archie Roach was the first musician to actually write and sing about that. And his famous song was called Took the Children Away. Hmm. And you just you just cry when you listen to it. And um, I, Bob King took some photos of him while I was, you know, Archie was not the kind of artist who was comfortable posing for photos. So he gave permission for Bob to just come and just take photos while we were talking. Um, and so not only did we get a lovely portrait of Archie, but we also got photos of me talking to Archie, which was very special for me to have for my archives. Yeah, it's it's it, this is an amazing conversation, Stacey. Thank you because it's making me go very deep into the memories of writing this book. And when you do a project of this kind, whether it's a book or a documentary film like you did, it's not just the finished product that state that that's there that exists for everyone else. It's the making of. It's the it's the stories that you keep in your head and your heart about how you put it together. That's what I, as the author, take away from this to this day. And so putting the book back out, that's what I think about, just bringing back all those incredible memories for me. Yes, and it will definitely um, bring a lot of memories back to people who read the book and maybe reconnect with songs that they might have forgotten. Um, I'm wondering, 
uh, sounds like you're really got your hands full right now, but do you have any other projects in the works or any plans mm. on doing another book or something? I, well, I want to get this Sherbet book written because um, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, you know how people often talk about Crosby, Stills, Nash, about all that disharmony behind the harmony. So there's a lot of that in the Sherbet story and, and tragedy. And I just want to put it out there. Um, I might be working on a project with our friend Henry Deltz, um, which I hope will see the light of day and and be talked about before the end of the year. And then I have a couple of a couple of personal memoirs that I want to work on. I I think you're aware that a couple of years ago I set off in a Toyota Rav Four and drove around America on my own for five yes. months. Yes, during the pandemic. During the pandemic, the second year of the pandemic, fifteen thousand and twenty miles exactly, or twenty four thousand kilometers, and. I did that on my own. I didn't sleep in my car. Um, but I slept on in 50 different beds or couches um, and stayed with friends or did Airbnbs or hotels or motels. But I really saw this country. And I had joked when I got off the road that I would call it, if driving across Wyoming didn't kill me, nothing will, um, <laughs> because that, that day was tough. But that would be the subtitle. I'd I, I might call it something like in the driver's seat, which has probably been used for other books, but it's a good one. Um, I really want to tell that story. It's not a pure travel book. It's a book about a woman's journey, and and I, I'm still on that journey. Um, I went back to Australia for 18 months, and I, I wondered if I'd just taken a wrong turn on my road trip going back, and now I've come back to L.A., and I'm thinking, oh, maybe that wasn't the wrong turn and this is the wrong turn, and that's the story of my life. I don't know. That sounds interesting. Yeah, there's a book, I don't know if you've read it, called, uh, I think it's just called Wild um, by Cheryl. Oh, Sturgeon. I saw the film. I yes. saw the film. So, yeah, yeah with, the book is fascinating. And it sounds like the same type of idea, which people absolutely love to read. I'm not going camping in the snow. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and then there is one other book that I need to get back to because it was the one I started after Songwriters Speak um, a few years just two years after this book came out, my mother tragically um, got a, 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 a malignant brain tumour and died quite quickly, well, seven months, eight months. And I was her caregiver through that. And my dog died the same week she died. So there's there's a good subject for a bad country music song. Exactly. But, um, but I found out more about her life and childhood um, when she was sick because she pointed me to a file of documents from her past that I never knew existed and she said go write my story and I then spent five years researching and I even hired a researcher and it took me to Bucharest and Romania and it took me to Philadelphia to where she'd been raised as a war refugee um, because she was a holocaust survivor essentially a, an infant holocaust survivor but nevertheless she survived the holocaust and um and so the story of how I even ended up being born in Australia is quite amazing. Um, but I realised that my mother's story is quite powerful and um, I really, really want to write it. And I started and then went to a memoir writing retreat 10 years ago in, in Montana, in Whitefish, Montana, with other women memoir writers and presented some of my writing there and never wrote another word of it mm. based on how I felt after I did that and the feedback I got. And so I put it down and got on with other things. And 
including moving to America, emigrating, getting my green card and then becoming a citizen. So it's probably the prime project that I know I need to do before I die. So four books I want to write. Yes, well, you have some amazing stories to tell, and I'll definitely be reading them. Um, For readers who want to find Songwriter Speak, can you remind us where they can get it and in which? Yeah, well, the hub probably is the website for the book, which is Songwriters Speak with the two S's in between, dot com. Um, If you go to the buy page, you'll see a list of links for different online retailers. It's it's print to order or immediate ebook. The reissue of the book is going to be bad business for the book resellers. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but good but, business for you. And I well, always love to support uh, authors. And Thank you. You are incredibly supportive and you're incredibly knowledgeable and, and broad-minded. And, um, you, can, you, you know, the work you do covers so much terrain from your passions of, of you know, whether that be nightmares, nightmare horror genre type work to music culture of all kinds. And that's why, you know, as you say, you know, we cross paths just trying to find our way to a screening room of a music film um, and then kept crossing paths. And we'll do again soon, I really hope, because it's just it's lovely to be in your company. Thank you. Uh, Well, thank you. And um, once again, songwriters speak. So everyone needs to read it, pick it up and uh, pass it along to your other music loving friends. Well, thanks for being on the show, Debbie. Oh, Stacey, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series, too. All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. That's R O C K N R O L L Nightmares.com. Our official theme song is She's Out for Blood by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening. <laughs>